Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck... Tuckians, what's happening? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Whew, take a deep breath. I hope everybody's uh hanging in, staying frosty, keeping alert, taking care of themselves, not falling in, trying to uh get up out of bed, have a life, enjoy things, maybe a chocolate bar. Uh, uh, pet a dog, uh, have fun with your kids. That's the thing with me. How's everybody doing? All right. Sorry. I did. I got right off into it. What's happening? Everybody. All right. My chest has been tight and, uh, you know, I'm back. I'm back from vacation from my, uh, relatively successful vacation where uh, I was in a beautiful place. And about half the time I was actually in the beautiful place. The other half that time, I was in my head in a very, very ugly place. But uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back at my house. It's good to be back at the garage. It's good to see my cats. Everybody is okay. Monkey, fine. LaFonda, good. Buster Kitten is now sort of evolving into a fairly uh, uh, sensitive uh, and um, unpredictable uh I don't know what age would be comparable to a, to a human, but he's no longer just crazy. He seems to uh, be evolving a personality and, and uh, requires affection occasionally. And he likes to uh, eat things out of my bowl. Uh, Deaf Black Cat, the uh, warrior, spirit animal, is uh, under the house and doing well. And occasionally, scaredy number two shows up out front. Big head from down the street pees on the door. So I came home to that. And there are coyotes around. That's always a, a scary uh, reality. And you can see it as a metaphor as well. When you see, uh, when you're driving in your car and you see that lone coyote, or maybe two or three of them, and they stop and they look at you, and you know that they're not necessarily going to attack you because that's not a coyote's way. Maybe they're presenting you with an issue of some kind. But uh, usually what they do is they scurry off into the dark and attack something smaller than them. Yes, metaphors abound, but there are some coyotes around. Hey, so Ryan Adams is on the show today. And it's interesting, the Ryan Adams and Ryan Adams music, is that uh, there's a few Ryan Adams records that I really liked. 
and I listen to it a lot, but I never have gotten into the full catalog with a with full on intensity, the nerd tensity uh, that uh, that many people have with Ryan, people who love Ryan. But I uh, I know he, I always knew he was an interesting guy, and we talked for a nice long time, got to know each other. So, getting back to the comedy stage, I I got on stage last night. Uh, over the weekend, been the first sets I'd done in three weeks. Uh, I I just I brought everything that was in my heart and in my mind. Uh, a little bit of anger, a little bit of anxiety, uh, but ultimately afterwards there was a tremendous catharsis with people, and they came up to me and were very appreciative. We got to keep talking, man. God damn it, we just got to keep talking to each other. I got a couple emails. Why not read a couple emails before I bring Ryan on? Listening with my son. Hey, Mark, I've been a fan for a few years now. Listening to the conversations you have with people has been a large part of my continued hope and faith in creativity, art, and people. Thank you for that. Recently, I started listening to certain episodes with my son. He is 10, which may seem a little young to be listening, but I have been surprised at what he has picked up on and been interested in. He thought your bit about the fuck it cookies was hilarious. Well, that was that's actually written for a 10 year old. And that sparked a really interesting conversation about body insecurity and eating your feelings. We've talked about politics, art, religion, work ethic and comedy. Of course, when we started listening, always in the car and just the two of us, I told him when it's just you and me, just us, you can talk to me about whatever the fuck you want. The truth is, I know in four or five years, he probably won't want to spend much time with me. But my hope is we will have the car and WTF to talk about whatever. My hope is to keep a line of communication open in a space where I'm not just his old man. Thanks for what you do and the beautiful place your conversations hold in my life already and hopefully hold in the future. Sean. Thank you, Sean. Sometimes I don't know if what I'm doing is... uh, you know, standing up to the test of our, our situations in life <laughs> at this juncture in history, I'm happy to hear it. And this is another email that is, you know, it's it's heavy, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's still along the lines of what we're talking about, you know. Opposites attract. Hey, Mark, let me introduce myself. I'm Rita from Texas and a big fan. The truth is you and I could not be more different. I am a mother of three crazy boys and married to the handsome guy I've loved since 11th grade. I've never done a single drug and only started drinking, but really not much, when I had children. I'm a medical provider and spend most of my days keeping my kids and patients alive, which can be challenging at times. I don't swear too much, and I really am not a cat fan, mostly due to allergies, but alas, it is true. Sorry, Boomer. In November, most of us felt deep sadness and fear when the election did not go as we had hoped. The sobering part is that I currently live 15 minutes from Mexico in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Every day I encounter those considered undesirable or bad. Every day I find love, grace, and kindness in a people soon to be ostracized and likely removed from our lovely area. Every day I hear stories of heartache and struggle. Every day I see faces of those unappreciated. However, your podcast gives me hope that somehow I can make a difference. The lessons I learn from those you interview are invaluable. Your interviews, your engagement, your curiosity, and your graciousness with each guest inspires me to find those things in the people I meet. So thank you. I've been trying to do more kind things and share gratitude with others since the election. Thus, the inspiration for this letter. I hope it finds you well and rested from your vacation. Keep it up. Thanks again, Rita. Thank you, Rita. I will keep it up. I will. So, me and Ryan Adams. I I I liked Ryan Adams. 
we had common friends. I knew who he was. There was a couple of his records I listened to a lot. And then I realized there are people that love him more deeply than anything in the world. And then he's got a very powerful following and people uh, just just crave everything Ryan Adams does, all 900 of his records. He also brought me back in touch with Mark Spitz, uh, uh, the writer who uh, I was friends with who, who passed away a week or so ago. Like I, just, just before he passed away, I was texting with him about Ryan because he had written a piece on Ryan. And that uh, was one of the you know, sad sort of... Um, good things i'm glad i had those few interactions with mark who was feeling pretty good so i really don't know what happened i have not heard yet but the thing that put me over the top in terms of interviewing ryan was i saw some little bit of footage of him playing an acoustic guitar at not even a music event really it looked like some other kind of event where someone handed him a guitar and he did he did a a cover an acoustic cover of my favorite grateful dead song there's a few songs by the grateful dead that that really moved me deeply and he seemed to be very moved deeply by the song that he was playing that had a very big impact on my life and i'm thought and that was what did i'm like that guy clearly loves that song and uh i love that song so i'm going to talk to that guy and i'll talk to him about that you'll you'll hear it in a second so ryan adams let's do it huh don't you think uh, his 16th album, Ryan Adams' 16th full-length solo album, Prisoner, comes out this Friday, February 17th. He's got a bunch of U.S. tour dates throughout the winter and spring. Go to PaxAmRecords.com for dates and cities. This is me talking to Ryan Adams. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get Get your podcasts. Adams. You open for the Stones? I did, actually, yeah. And did you, like, did you have any time with them? I did, in fact. Yeah? But I had been around them before. Yeah, when? So, my, strangely, the my... first time being around them. Yeah. The first time that would make sense for me to say, like, oh, yeah, I was hanging out with them or close to them was um, when I was mix in the mix process yeah. of Whiskey Town Strangers Almanac. So the first band. Yeah. So in the building, this is strange to say, but Don was is across the hall from me uh, mixing the producer and bass player. Don yeah. was. Yes. Yeah. The guy. The wizard of was. The was man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he's across the hall. Yeah, and I actually, I had met him, but we weren't b- the bros we are now. Yeah. Because it's, he's my, he's my, he's my, my friend now. Yeah. Like he's the guy I call, first guy I call to play bass. Yeah. First guy I call if I need advice. He's just 
always there, a great guy. But at the time, I was actually freaking out because I loved Was Not Was, and I loved the way that he ran that band, and yeah. I loved how subtly, so out of control those records were. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people might not realize, like, you know, um, Walk the Dinosaur is about nuclear war. Right. Like, yeah, th- that's buried in there. How do you know that? Well, I knew before, but yeah. strangely, in a conversation with him, we act, he was like, you're one of the few people that understood that. And I was like, yeah, the chorus is basically meant you're doing a dance out of when they would tell school children of my generation to get on the floor and get under your desk if a bomb went off, if the nu- if a, in case of a nuclear war. Yeah. Which, like, really would not probably help you in many ways. Sure. But, so, that's kind of how that song, I mean, I sort of saw the subtleties in that. and Yeah. Um, and they were incredible live and on t- TV when you'd see them at work. But so he's across the hall, Keith and Charlie and Mick, um, everyone's in there. I, I don't, I think Bill had left by then. Um, and then down the hall is Ethan Johns with Chris Stills, who I, Ethan, who would later do my first solo record. Right. Um, weirdly. And then Gwen's all, kid. Yeah. yeah. And then all the way down the hall on the other side was Scott Litt working on a Liz Fair album. So what's weird is like all these people would later come together. Like two days ago, two or three days ago, like Don Was is playing bass at my studio. Liz Fair is on guitar. My friend Nate is on drums. Two days ago. A couple days ago. Yeah. yeah, we've been working on her thing. So that's how I originally met Stones. And they were um, lovely. I got into a conversation with Charlie Watts first about Penny Loafers. And I just said... You know, I walked in and I saw him and I was just like, oh, okay. And I was like, okay, just be, I told myself, just be cool. It's fine. Which it, which it was. Yeah. And I said, hey, you know, how's it going? How's your day? And he's like, you know, it's the usual waiting around. <laughs> and then he's like, I went to buy a pair of penny loafers. He's like, it's the damnedest thing. He's like, I collect penny loafers. I, I quite like them. And then he, he puts his foot up on yeah. this roll case and he said, do you want to see the strangest thing? He's like, do you have a penny or a dime? And I said, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was like, that's probably all I have. And I pulled it out and he goes, he's like, they penny won't actually fit in them. And he's like, and I don't understand where they, he's like, if I were to pull the stitch out, I yeah. feel like it would be wrong. Like, how do I know where it ends? Like he was getting deep about it. About the penny, about yeah. getting the penny in. Yeah. And I just remember going like, man, I'm like talking to Charlie Watts about like penny loafers right now. This is very unusual. <laughs> and we had the funniest conversation and he was super cool. Um, Keith was always very nice. Yeah. I would run into him and I, I drank a lot in those days. Um, I mean, not in the day, but at nighttime, yeah. we were mixing, I get bored. And, yeah. And and strangely, at that time, I, I drank Southern Comfort, which is not for the weak of spirit. It's also easy going down, though, <laughs> as far as the hard stuff goes. That was a that was a, a popular one when I was in high school because you could get it down. We used to do flaming shots in high school. We yeah. fill the cap up, set it on fire. <laughs> you mean then, you like it feels like after a while, like it, like your mouth and throat have been like coated with like a yeah. bubble gum residue yeah like a syrup <laughs> yeah it's like yeah. you wake up and you like you can't move your flips you're like what is happening it never happened <laughs> southern comfort never happened again after high school for me yeah it was pretty gross but i guess i just i don't know for some reason it was the thing i thought i could handle at did the you time. grow up with it no i mean i grew up around people drinking and stuff i mean at different intervals and something i found later yeah socially awkward therefore you know just drink and kind of took the side the edge off yeah and and i would see keith like we'd 
either because um, you could smoke in studios back yeah. then or go into the upstairs restroom and I'd run into him on the way down or way up and he's like, it's like rush hour in here, kid. It's the first thing he ever said to me. And I think and I think I was just like, honk, honk. I just said something funny back. I just was disarmed. Yeah. I smoked my first cigarette in 10 years with him. Wow. I made a decision. It was good. I understand that decision, strangely. I really do. I think I, I, think I understand it. And, and, and I, I mean... I had to. He's my fucking hero. He's really cool. I had really good conversations and 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 times with him um, on that tour. He likes to laugh. He likes to, to spin the yarn. He's very funny. Very he's, funny. And and he's also very um, for any character that anyone thinks about this man. He is a deeply intellectual guy. That's what, yeah. Well, that was what everyone learned when that book came out. People who hadn't talked to him because having you know worshipped him for my whole life, he kind of got him in a box yeah as this junkie dude who represents this lifestyle but then you read that book you're like holy fuck yeah he, he knows everything yeah i remember the first time i was having a conversation with him and he passed me a joint and i remember i my brain went into that freeze moment where you're like you know maybe you Maybe it's uh, like imagine someone who their whole life they loved Meryl Streep or something. Yeah. They have pictures of her on their wall right. or whatever. And so they m are find themselves at a coffee shop and they're behind her and then they say something. And that time starts to slow down and freeze just for the moment where their pleasant exchange happens. Yeah. I mean, unless it's like probably some asshole. Yeah, like, right, right. But so like, but I remember um, they were like, I was... It was before I went on. It was the day, and it was a big production. He was like, Keith says, come down to Camp X-Ray. That was the name of his backstage area, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah, right on. And I went down and said hello. I sat down, and I remember he passed me this joint. Yeah. And time just went, and I looked at his fingers, and I looked at my fingers going to grab it, and it was like, in my mind, I was imagining like the um, – Sistine Chapel or whatever yeah, where it's yeah, like the two hands the, the hand of God and the yeah, hand of man yeah it's like like I was like oh my god the joint is being passed it was so crazy um, that was like that was like one of the better ones but yeah I didn't want to open for them because I knew that um, I like you know I knew enough to know that like for me you know, I would do it for everyone else in the band to have the experience. Right. But I knew that no one was going to care. Right. Because you were the opening band. Yeah. And what's interesting was it was the first time I ever probably really went, I know they don't care. So therefore, I actually will try this new thing called, I'm going to try so friggin' hard to m see what I could do. To with. get them to care? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or to at least... Because I, because it was, I mean, at the time, whoever, what kind of a brat kid I was, or whatever I was thinking, I was like, well, this means I could do anything I want, and I don't want to phone it in <laughs> so. in, a, in an arena of twenty thousand people. <laughs> yeah, some of those shows were really, really big. And did you get him to care? I think a few times. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I did. What'd you do though? To, when you, what do you do? Do you push harder? Do you? go deeper what do you what what decisions are you making with your guitar and your mouth up there that's going to connect with a, an incoming crowd for a rolling stone show i mean i don't know i i i think at the t i don't remember each one they 
I was was it a song choice or was it an intensity choice? Well, the song choice was really stupid. Instead of playing songs that would have been recognizable to the audience yeah. in any way, yeah. because I believe that this tour would have been at the very end of the gold kind of tour time. And that was your big record. I mean, people say that, but I don't remember it that way at all. Yeah. Um, there was really, at the time, like, there was no love. Like, yeah. Like, it was not the thing it is, but then it, it becomes a thing over time. Maybe, In retrospect. I guess. Like, I guess it... You get your place. You, 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 you know, as history goes, like, as the history is written... That that takes a, a place in relative to the rest of your career. Like, oh, what about Whiskey Town? It, it's it's made me question and be a different person specifically only in seeing the way that the past, whether it be a negative or a positive yeah. thing to the person, yeah. how it then can translate later as completely false. And yet to that person or to the common knowledge of humans, a complete inaccuracy. Right. And there's no way to shift it. But but yeah, but also it's very, very interesting. With music, it's very personal. Like you know, whatever you may think, or whatever the reality of it is, you know how people look at that stuff in relation to the rest of your work. You know, you can't take that away from them. No, totally. But I mean, actual stories or oh, specific oh. things where you go <laughs> like mythology. Yeah, you yeah. go like, well, that I know that didn't hap- happen, <laughs> but I guess I'm going to let that ride because. But it makes you think about. I don't take it personally. I think about it in terms of world history. I'm like, oh, cool. So like. Wait, like, so what stuff really happened or didn't happen? Right. It makes you question, like, the way that things are handed down. I think the day that you process that information and take it it into your heart or, like, really, like, can know that that is true. Yeah. That is a a day of change for any human. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't happen for some, but for those that it happens to, I think that it's from that fork in the road that only a little bit further down the road, once you've seen that you have two more forks and one of them is towards bitterness and the other is towards total acceptance that you're not really in control of the way information is and so you just ride ride with it well that fork between bitterness and acceptance is uh it 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 can come at several junctures you know what yeah it keeps forking off it does right there you always come to that fork and i guess it gets it gets a little easier to not choose bitterness as a the complete road you're on if if you have some success under your belt or you feel a little bit better about yourself but there's always uh you know there's always the bitter rest stop yeah (laughs) you don't have to get on that road but you know you might as well you can pull over as a touring musician i could attest that most of them are (laughs) for real it's always a new experience there's always a new insulting hat or someone's looking at you you know and you're in like your black sabbath like long sleeve cool bootleg t-shirt yeah and bunny slippers and there's some truck driver that's just like what, what? the hell son? Where, where are you from yeah, what, what is this clown show <laughs> yeah. you know it's like great you're like man it's the middle of the night i'm stoned i'm just trying to find the bathroom <laughs> like great give me a break yeah totally well it's weird because with with my relationship with your music and what i've heard about you like i remember my first like i had what do you think you the record easy tiger I mean, I've really... Because I listened to the shit out of that record. Mm. And for some reason, that was my introduction to you. I don't know why. I don't know where I got it or who told me to listen to it. But that was the one yeah, at that point where I like I played it a lot. And I was like, this is a great record. I have a manager that is <laughs> really... He is very smart. Yeah. And... 
for my creative world, the way that I am creative and the way that I can sort of do my music and make so much of it and do whatever, it's a difficult thing for anyone to edit that, producer or not. Yeah. Because the amount of information that's happening is a lot and it's hard to know like uh if you're like a tennis player but your hobby is tennis yeah it's hard to know when is the real game happening right. yeah for yeah. some people usually there's a crowd there and some trophy at stake yeah and i had um easy tiger strangely would have been um i mean i really am very sentimental about that record and so many tracks happen around that record so it was a strange thing to have experienced to me making that record but really that record is like i feel like it's the culmination of like five days or something uh -huh. out of about a nine month to a year and a month recording session oh really <laughs> where i made so much other stuff because i had um i had i had quit drinking uh, and doing drugs around that time and i i didn't really um, I didn't feel like going to like a rehab facility. Yeah. Um, I later would learn a lot in therapy about things and why and all this different stuff and how, how it works. And Related to what, addiction? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, um, although I completely and totally um, would choose to like, you know, like drink and smoke smoke cigarettes and like do some drugs. It was usually in the application of doing music for a longer period of time you felt like it was a tool yes exactly it was yeah. i mean I, I, very rarely was it a social thing it was enriched for me i think by that feeling spaced out uh, or whatever but it it all stopped around that time and uh easy tiger yeah before it yeah so well, the way i did it was i just went in the studio for a year basically i just went every day and i made whatever was on the top of my head and the out come of that was I was completely hyperactive and spastic and I had no idea because I wasn't hungover and I wasn't like you know feeling worn out from having been up till seven in the morning or yeah. whatever it was yeah. I just was a different energy yeah which sort of turned into like oh my god and I had all this stuff to say and I said it all and what's really weird is at the very end of it like I think a couple of maybe elegant things came out because I was completely exhausted of making like fake soundtracks for something that didn't exist and like bad like <laughs> hip hop stuff that I didn't know what I was doing or metal or wh who knows what I was doing there. So, well, I mean but there but but that's sort of like part of your whole uh, the mis the mystery of you is that you know you sort of move through all these different forms of music. And and that you know you seem to have this never ending uh, recesses in your soul to uh, express yourself through you know whatever you impulsively feel musically, which I think is how it should be. Yeah, you know it's it's not for me to know how to create that thing where you want someone to want the next thing to what you want to create like not supply and demand but you want things to be spaced out in a way where. People have time to digest the information, and you have a time to like express it on a tour, and then maybe there's a lull, and then you and then you give people a new chapter. For me, it was a, it was like I just lived music. It's just what it was a safe place for me to go, and it was where I wanted to be. When did that start? Ever since I got a guitar, 16, 15 years old. I, I always just played. Where'd you come from? Jacksonville, North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So there really wasn't. I mean. Most of my friends were either like dying or getting arrested. For what? 
And from what? Just this or that? Drugs, skate, skateboarding, getting wasted. Yeah. Wrecking their car. Who fucking knows? Who'd you grow up with? Like, what, what was the family situation? I grew up with my brother and sister and my mom, but then kind of spent most of my time with my grandparents as much as I could until eventually I basically was sort of inseparable from them. It just was the right vibe for me. What, why, what was going on with your mom? I mean, it wasn't so much hers. It was, um, you know, this is the part that's interesting. I feel a, some, there are some days now that my grandmother's passed, my Gma and my papa, as I would call them. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I mean, for at, at this chapter of my life anyway, and who knows by the end what it'll, I'll say, but I could almost say that one of the things I think I was here this time for, if there are many times, yeah, or even if it's just once, it was to be with them. It was to hang out with them. With your grandparents? Yeah. I've, I've, I knew them. Yeah. I, I'd, we were so funny. And my grandfather, he was so funny and like... Uh, like a he was like a a prankster you yeah. know he's the kind of guy that like you know re-gifts you the same thing three times and you can't figure out how it's because he stole the thing back and put it back in the wrapper and like, yeah, yeah. like you know and like hide behind doors and like you know and he's always up for a journey and then he got sick with emphysema and um, they approximated that he maybe would have like seven months to a year to live and he lived seven years about seven years and and a half maybe a little more after he got diagnosed yeah because he was like i feel like his position and i'm certain he said it at least once was he's like i'm not going anywhere until the braves win the world series <laughs> yeah. i remember literally looking at him <laughs> and going like you're gonna live forever because it doesn't look good right now <laughs> and like and you know yeah we would have that conversation yeah, and you yeah. would crack up and then like i i loved listening to his stories he was in world war ii and um he saw a lot of his friends, people he was really close with die. Yeah. And he was letting a lot of stuff go in those last years. And I was there for it. I, I don't know why. I, yeah. I should have been like going like out to go like, what, like, where are the girls? Like, where's a boob? Like, should have been going to do what the mischievous young man does. You like, were like 15? I mean, well, he got sick when I was nine ten something like that and where's your and your mom lives close by yeah a couple of streets down oh okay so it was just easy to kind of stay with them and and also she had her hands full and um and like we didn't particularly get along no, no. and you have a brother and a sister yeah older brother younger sister so the older brother element what, what did he how did he, how'd he end up He's a very math-minded person, which oh, yeah. is interesting because I can't do math, <laughs> but I could write structured songs and all this yeah, yeah. stuff, but he could do complex math equations just in his head. Yeah. it's He's pretty interesting. It, but and He grew up loving the Scorpions and Ozzy, and I thank him for that because <laughs> he made sure that I had a copy of Diary of a Madman. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, cool, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that, which is awesome. Yeah. And uh, and my sister is really smart, and she, I think, w the way that my brother was kind of like, I would say, authentic nerd, and the way I was sort of skate punk nerd, mm -hmm. maybe like nerd and awkwardness or whatever, or just in what I, you know, I was like yeah. reading Reader's Digest and watching like Doctor Who, The Fourth Doctor, and yeah. Dark Shadows. Like, yeah. that's who I was from as far as I can remember. Um, and that's because we had um, the university 
of North Carolina and Wilmington that that was near enough that PBS was awesome. Yeah. Whoever was programming it was like a huge stoner because it was the weirdest <laughs> stuff I ever seen. And so I was like into that. And um, and my sister was maybe the more, I think, in a good way, the most well-adjusted and, uh-huh. and, and interested in the contemporary life of high school and life. And, uh, and you and your brother and, were sort of off the grid a little. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think I had that. Um, I, I mean, I think it was probably looking back. I, I can imagine them thinking like, wow, I was always like drawing or writing poetry yeah, yeah. or reading stuff and or like asking these deep questions or spending time with um, Papal who told me lots of, I mean, lots of really detailed, incredible stories. And my grandmother, um, she, there was, there, there will, there will never be someone like that. Like she was an unbelievable person. She, you could not get her down. Yeah. Yeah. And she just crocheted blankets and watch TV <laughs> and like, um, which is unbelievable. And she made lemon pound cake. Yeah. And she would, like, even though they lived right at the limit of just, I mean, I used to think that house was so nice and big and, like, and she had, like, a big old black Comet yeah. car, you know. And But I used to think that they had so much stuff. But when I actually went back after she passed, I was like, wow, that this was a really minimal yeah. environment. And yeah. But she was always crocheting blankets. Yeah. And making cakes, and then we would get in the car, and she'd either drop them off at her church for the registry of people in need, or she would somehow find these, find people who were like really needed yeah. a, a hand or a cake. Well, she would bring, she would go grocery shopping and get canned goods, and then either bring them a cake or a blanket. Yeah, and I would see that in real in real time. I'd be in the car. I would always go with her on the adventures. Yeah. And I'd be like, "What has just happened?" And she's like, "Well, I I just uh, I just picked up some some stuff for our friends." And I was like, oh, "Okay." And I was like, "Well, who are they?" She goes, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> and then she would turn on the radio, and then we would both like listen to some cool classic song. And then if we're at a stoplight, she used to, to go along with the drums, like whatever song it was, yeah. she would make that noise. Yeah, that's my vivid memory of. Just not just music, but like how all that time was. Yeah, and when and what was your mom doing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. And where was your dad? My dad was building houses. Yeah. He yeah he's a um general contractor and he does a lot of like really cool cabinetry stuff and still. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He he he's a he's an interesting guy. You have a relationship with him. I do now, yeah, and I did somewhat at the time. Yeah, um, my fi- my f- immediate parental history is somewhat strange in that it was kind of estranged. Yeah, kind of, it just didn't really work for me. <laughs> and it's like, it's so funny too because it's like I f- sometimes feel like it's sort of like Beetlejuice. It's like I don't want to say it. Yeah, like I I don't even like to. It's like I I'll let it pass in my mind once, and I'll be like, eh. Yeah, what, the fact that it was estranged? Just in general. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I, I don't know. Yeah. So when did you when did you get the first guitar? 16? Yeah, I traded my skateboard for a guitar. Were you like a wild skateboarder, like pools and shit? Yeah, that 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 was mostly what I could do. It was in the beginning of when, um, like, Santa Monica Airlines and, like, Santa Cruz, those companies, and those skaters started to, you know, the nose of the skateboard got a little bigger, and you'd see 
I would see my friends at first. We were carving grinds, big ollies going fast, going to pools that were drained and skating them bowls. Yeah. And just as I was getting out of it is when kick flips and like shove it's and all that stuff started happening. Yeah. Which is fine. But I remember thinking like, wow, I'm like watching my friend. He's like spending four hours like trying to land this double kickflip over this little hump at like the bank when it was closed. And I was just like, I just really want to go fast and like catch like some, like, you know, do like a big ollie and do some gnarly grab and, and get out of it before I'm like shredded on the pavement. Right. And, or just grind stuff. And it was just how I was. Yeah. And it was at that point I was like, well, like maybe I'm more about ramp skating, but I didn't have a car. And there wasn't really a pool to skate except for from this sort of semi-abandoned hotel at the edge of our neighborhood, which I still would skate. Yeah. And it was almost unskatable, but man, I made it skatable. I would just loosen the trucks up enough and just, I made it work. <laughs> and if there was water in the bottom of the thing, like I didn't care. I was just like, I'm going to deal with it. This, see, I should have known something was weird yeah. early on, and then, but it made, made sense. But, um, but I used to get like dizzy spells. But I also would get really discom. I would get discombobulated if I tried to skate backwards. Yeah, because you see a lot of skaters like they go up and um, they'll go up to the lip of a skateboard. Yeah, and then they put the skateboard over the top. Yeah, and they keep it there for a second. Yeah, and then um, then they go backwards. Yeah, and then they roll down the transition backwards just by looking the other way, and then do a trick from backwards to spinning around. Right. The only couple of times I tried to do that were brutal. They were like, I mean, that was like some stuff where you, I just was like, where, where am I? And then I just like slam as hard as I could. And I'm like, was that a moment? And then I like try like kind of a smaller version of that. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. So I cannot fakey anything. I cannot go backwards. Right. Which and is really interesting. Was that the end of the skating career? That realization? No, I mean, I still, I still skate when I'm on tour. I skate around the venues. I yeah, like, I, I like, I enjoy it. And, it. and if I can find a park where I could really carve it up, it's great. And um, so, what was the music going on? I mean, what, what was it like? You know, outside of your brother's records, how do you get you know into the music? Well, the first thing I ever did was I got the guitar. I. I really picked up, I think it was Half a Hollow or something where I was like, there might be a picture. I know there's a picture of, of Andy Rourke playing his bass. Um, and then there's a picture maybe of Johnny in the corner with a guitar. But for certain, there was a Black Sabbath record or two, maybe Dio era Sabbath. Yeah. Where you could see uh, Tony Omi playing. Right. And um, and I and because I went to play the guitar and it didn't feel right. And I was like, I'm not making the sound. So I was like, what is happening? And I just, so I looked at the pictures and I was like, because I was like, the guitar must be broken. And then I looked at the pictures I was like, wait, they're really pressed. He's really pressing down. Yeah. I was like, that has to be what these silver things are. Right. And I really pressed down and I hit the note and I'm like, oh. Uh. And then I was like, well, it doesn't sound right the way it's tuned. It was probably too normal. Right. And I was like, so that must be wrong because this doesn't sound like anything on there. So I detuned the E string and I detuned the second string a little bit. And then the high strings, I think I detuned one. Who knows what the tuning was? And right. I went, wow, now it sounds good open. And instantly figured out if I slid my finger up on the lower strings at different places, I could instantly make what sounded like bar chords yeah. with the ringing part open. Right. So the this is the first hour. So at the end of the first hour, I was like, oh, great. And I wrote a song. No words. No words right away. I, there's a little boombox cassette somewhere of it. I have like 
in a big thing of all my cassettes where I'm just basically going like, oh, wow, I can do this. And so I just wrote a song. I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember the contents because as soon as I was done with that one, I wrote another one right away. In my mind, I was like, I sound just, this is like, oh my God, I basically sound, you know, like Jakey Lee right now. But I didn't sound like Jakey Lee at all. I was like, yeah, I'm George Lynch. This is amazing. And, you know, like, and so that's the beginning, like, and it, and it just was like that every day. And with no guidance, no, man, there was nobody to tell me anything. But how do you learn how to play guitar? That's it. I just tuned it down. And then I just started to figure out the low, like I figured out kind of how that stuff would work. Yeah. And then I would also figure out later quickly. I was like, okay, what combinations work? And luckily the middle, some of the middle strings were still in regular tuning. So a, a normal bar chord um, seemed obvious to me also from pictures. Yeah. And I thought like, I was like, it doesn't, I was like, I'll try it on the lower ones, but if this is the tuning everyone's using, they sound weird here, but it's cool. And later on, I would find out that like, you could kind of do like, dun, 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 by just moving that one. Yeah. But in the middle, I would slide up with the drone. Yeah. It, it all kind of ended up sounding a little bit like, I, I don't know, like by the time I met, and played with the first musician, which was not long after that. Um, it, it probably sounded like surf rock and Sonic Youth mixed a little bit, like because because you figured out, dun, 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 but you had this noise at the well, other. Well, I end. would never play that, even though I knew what that was. It was I was mostly trying to get stuff to sound kind of dissonant, like dissonant and cool. Like I remember thinking, like I really want this. Like I loved Husker Du, and 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 I loved like driving and crying, and I loved like. REM and I loved um, mostly metal yeah. but I, I knew weirdly though I didn't want to play metal which I don't know how I don't know how I knew that yeah I think something in me went you stayed up to watch the Cowboy Junkies the other night on, on SNL like yeah. you did that yeah like, so like as metal as you are you <laughs> that's probably not who you are on the guitar your true self comes out on guitar I think I think that's true yeah and so in the Cowboy Junkies resonated Oh man, big time! But metal was metal, satisfying to listen to, but maybe it was not where. Obviously, it wasn't where your heart was going to express itself. I mean, I make a lot of it at Soundcheck, and I definitely do it in my own studio, tons, and and it's fun. And I can see the complexities of had I committed to it. I think I would have eventually broke through, and it would have had a lot of parts of breakdowns of clean arpeggiations into heavy riffs. Yeah. But it doesn't stick with me the same way as like maybe trying to sort of like trying to stumble onto a song. I sort of heard it echoing from far away and I called it through the guitar and like the and let it kind of become a thing. And that's know? how you write? I think it's a little bit like it's not automatic writing, but it's a form of it. Like I mostly write by I'll wait until I have a couple of friends around, like a bass player, drummer, and yeah. I'll just in the moment like play some chords that feel expressive to me. I mean, the new record, Prisoner, is just me and my best friend, Johnny T, in New York, because I couldn't be here for a while. I mean, I could be here for a while, but I didn't want to be here for a Why? Um, like, I was going through a divorce. Like, it, it's it takes a minute. It's just life. It's not a big deal. Recently? Yeah. I mean, to go make new music, I kind of wanted... I wanted to go back to New York, where I had lived before, and... Um, uh, before I lived in LA and, and and be with my best friend and be at a studio just so I didn't just driving down Sunset was weird so how do you move from you know these open tunings you know half Sonic Youth half Surf into what was the experience with Cowboy Junkies that sounds like it was a cathartic sort of moment there was a window there yeah 
I mean, I remember seeing the Sweet Jane video and being mystified. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was a Velvet Underground song. Yeah. But I, what they were doing at that time, there was a couple of bands that really interested me, specifically um, Galaxy 500. Yeah. I was waiting for On Fire to come out. It was one of the big records of my life. And I believe the same issue or somewhere around the same time, Galaxy 500 On Fire was getting a great review at the same time that there was a Daydream Nation Sonic Youth um, review in, yeah. in uh, Rolling Stone. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's like two huge records coming out that I want. Yeah. Um, so once I heard Galaxy 500 and they were so slow and so mesmerizing, I it was easy for me um, to sort of... For, from Cowboy Junkies to Galaxy 500, it was there was something about that idea of like music that's slow is really calling me, but music that's slow and it sort of feels effortless and there's like this stuff passing me by. It just really made sense. Yeah. Um, and I loved Sonic Youth Sister, which also was a very weird record. And strangely enough, when I went to the record bar in the mall, which I used to skate to, like I skateboarded to go get the first Danzig solo record the day it came out I was so stoked you know like I was used to smell the cassette I'm like oh I could smell it's like fresh it just came off the printer like like an idiot you know and like and it was a pretty far away place to skate to get a cassette but those days really were beautiful because I I was sort of fetishizing records and getting a record and and then examining all the things that it that it were in there yeah so by the time actually that I'd had a couple of songs on this tuning. Um, I go to the the record store, and for some reason, you're different. You've played guitar, or I was. Yeah. And I noticed that the guy, one of the guys behind the desk, and then this other guy that worked there that looked kind of like he, like a, like he could have been in social distortion, but if they were clearly from North Carolina, if you could put that in your mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, these guys are like looking at me in a funny way, and I, I guess I was always asking questions about the SST rec- records yeah. if they had certain records, and they, there might have been an ad up that said like there's a sh- like a, there is a show in town, and um, and that they were looking for other musicians, and and he was like, yeah, he's like, I see you're always looking uh, at the Sonic Youth stuff, and you you buy like some cool stuff here, and I was like, right on, yeah, and he's like. Uh, he was like, do you play music? And I was like, well, um, I was like, yeah, I play guitar. He's like, you play guitar? I was like, yeah, I play guitar. Uh, and, uh, and he's like, well, what's the vibe? And I said, I don't know. Like, it's, I was like, I think it sounds, <laughs> I was like, I think it sounds like Dawkins and Sonic Youth a little bit or something. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I made some reference to like, <laughs> was completely off base. Yeah. And I remember he was like, right away, he was like, Man, we need to jam. He's like, he's like, what are you doing later? And I'm like, what you mean, like today? He's like, yeah. Um, I was like, I don't know. Like, I think I'm going. I don't remember what the thing was, but he was like, cool. Well, tomorrow, I have this friend that plays drums, and you meet up at it. Like, I'll, I can meet you at like three o'clock. Yeah. And we'll go jam. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. And I told him the street corner to meet me at, and like, I went there with the guitar. I got in the van, we drove out to this rehearsal place and then the drummer guy, it was really cool looking. They had a microphones and a PA and a four track and this big ass drum set. 
And sure enough, the guy that walks in, that's the drummer. Yeah. His name is Alan Midget. And he was the guy who lived behind my grandmother's house that had a half pipe that I could never skate, that I grew up hearing punk rock coming out of a boombox from. And like, they were, and like, I wanted to like, I wanted them to skate because I loved watching them skate from an early age. So I would even go over and try to sweep the ramp thinking it would summon them. And he'd be like, get out of my yard, brat. <laughs> and I used to play like touch football. Like, I mean, we call it touch football, but it was like the cruelest, harshest form of football ever with no helmets, like yeah. out in the court, this like cul-de-sac in, in, in front of my grandma's house. And I couldn't believe that it was that guy. Like, yeah. is this guy new since... I could remember and he at this point was like had dreadlocks and he was working at like a surf shop and yeah like, and uh and he came in and he was like what are you doing here geek and I was like oh man and I showed him the song and I think he realized right away um I was like so this is what I have I could tell right away that he didn't want to tell me that the guitar was not in a standard tuning yeah because he thought you knew something he didn't tell me for a long time, which is really weird. And But I could tell that he was marking to know kind of where notes were. Yeah. Because he'd be like, here, just tune it all up to so it sounds good with this note. It would be like his G or yeah, his yeah. D. He's or trying whatever. to get you to tune your guitar. But yeah, basically, but keep the tuning the, the way it was. Right. So, But I showed him the first song. He was like, no way. And we started playing it right away. And as we're jamming it, I remember like right in the middle of the jam and I kind of, I don't know if I was mumbling some words into the PA, but um, mostly it was just instrumental, but it sounded so cool. Like the chorus was cool. And, and I went into this improv part. I was so into it. I was like, like yeah. high up on yeah. the thing. But right before that moment, it's the first note I ever recorded really with the band is he must have been like, oh shit. And he like, reaches over lunges over and hits record on the four track yeah and he gets that moment on tape the whole session and i have that tape and you can hear the thing go and then the riff like the whole first riff so like i have my first moment with these guys who would be like my best friends and my heroes and like like my you know your first thing yeah it's on it's on a cassette it's so cool and it sounds still incredible it sounds like the just the energy is so insane you well know? it's all like it's on fire it's your first time playing with people yeah and and they really responded i think because I, I think a lot of the stuff that they probably a lot of the guitar players they were finding i think were probably either really metal but didn't have a lot of their own ideas right or, or wanted to just do covers and also there's that time where where you don't know enough to be uh cynical or doubting like you're just in it yeah i mean that's what, eventually what you always try to get back to i would imagine yeah absolutely and like you only knew these four things so you were going to get everything you could get out of them once the vibe kicked in. True. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's funny. I think I've stayed in that place for a long time. How long did you play with those guys? <sighs> Over a year. Yeah. I mean, we played until we couldn't play anymore. Alan and I became very tight. He, he stayed my friend um, his whole life, and he went through a lot of stuff before he died, which wasn't just 
only a couple of years ago, uh, around the time I, that I, um, you know, was uh, first going, you know, going through the first stages of a divorce and stuff. Alan passed away. It was, it was brutal, very brutal. But, um, but yeah, he he always. It's funny. He kind of loved the Cowboy Junkies, and 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 he loved the idea of playing mellower stuff as well. That's kind of how our first band split into two, and that's when I think I started to go like, okay, cool. What are songs? Right. And how do you land on the band Whiskey Town? How do you land on going back to that the sort of American roots music? Well, I moved to Raleigh eventually from Jacksonville. Yeah. Because um, I couldn't stay there anymore. I just, I had sort of outgrown it. And um, before I had moved, I started a band with my friend Kevin Doddridge, who um, taught me how to play a regular tune guitar. Yeah. Because I used to be like, God, I have to stretch my fingers, like, as far as I'll go to hit this chord. And he'll go, and he was the first guy to go, Ryan, you know that that's just a G chord. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're like Bubble Boy. I guess so. And and I remember going like, why did nobody tell me this? And they're like, because it sounded cool. Like we didn't. We I don't like who's to say that that's right anyway. It could change any day. Like we were so isolated. Like it could change. Like that could become what people do later. And yeah. like that's not real. Like come on. Like I don't know. Like I'm pretty sure like G and C and D are established. Yeah. It's gonna stay there. There's books that talk about it. And I was like, wow. Like D chords feel so cool. Yeah. Um, I moved to Raleigh. Um, I got two jobs. I couldn't really find a decent job. Yeah. Uh, which was hard. I lived in like kind of like a sort of one room temporary kind of, I don't know what people would call it now. Like, I mean, there were definitely people there that were probably like, I don't know, like doing a lot of drugs and yeah. stuff. And um, I was walking down the street. Yeah. And this guy named Skillet Gilmore. Yeah. Um, he goes, hey, man, I heard you're looking to start a new band. Maybe it sounds like, like some Cowboy Junkie stuff. And I was like, how do you know? And he goes, I don't know. People talk. It's weird. And he's like, come in. He's like, come inside for a beer. And yeah. I did. And I told him, I was like, well, I might have to leave town because I'm out of money. I don't have a job. But I really want to do it. And he's like, I'll give you a job where you can work here. And he had just taken over running that place. Yeah. And he was a drummer. And he was really cool. And I said, Yes. And like I ended up, you know, um, we ended up right away like finding different people to be in the band like straight out of the bat. Yeah. I think by that night we basically had most of the lineup just from speculation. Yeah. <laughs> they were all around? Yeah. There were people that someone else knew or like, well, I know this person that plays violin that, that could play some fiddle who sings. She's really good. And, yeah. And they're like, oh, what about Steve? Steve could play bass. And like I was like, wow, this is happening very fast. And by the end of the evening, like we were all pretty loaded. Yeah. But we had basically kind of more or less formulated what we were going to do. And then you started working, playing. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really play with some of those principal characters until a bit later on. Um, and originally, Skillet, myself, and this other guy named Brian, we kind of tried a three-piece for a minute that kind of sounded like the gun club while we were sort of still trying to set up stuff with the band. But I remember the first time um, all five of us ever played and it was actually really good. Yeah. Like we just kind of, like we just sort of, we thought, we played like what we thought was a country song and I knew it didn't sound like that. Yeah. And and mutually, I think we all kind of looked around and we're like, wow, this is accidentally kind of works. Right. In a sort of shitty, we don't have a bridge kind of way. Uh-huh. And that was the beginning of the sound. 
that definitely I mean, it never variated. It always stayed kind of crappy. Yeah. What can we do with this? Yeah. You know? Which right. is which is pretty cool. Throughout the entire career of Whiskey Town? Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, I think that the only difference would be by the time we made that second record, um, Jim Scott really tried to find a bigger sound in us and he did, but it wasn't something that we could reproduce live. Right. And then the third record with Ethan Johns was so experimental that yeah. it was only Caitlin and I left that it really was just like a soft transition into being solo. What happens after Whiskey Town? You build a pretty good following with Whiskey Town, right? No. I think history is wrong um, about Whiskey Town. In fact, most of what happened at Whiskey in Whiskey Town and even the tours and stuff, yeah. they were pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, they were terrible. Like ter- replacements terrible? No. I no, I mean I've read that book and I but they they were really truly talented. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I am I'm not being I'm not saying that I have no talent. Right. Um but I'm saying that I don't I cannot imagine having that degree of talent. Right. That that, that band um let alone uh just Tommy and Paul have Yeah. It's uh, unbelievable and um uh but for me that band for for me like being in whiskey town felt like okay cool we started kind of this country thing we yeah. kind of went there and it makes sense but we never could really like i wasn't really applying myself and didn't understand how songcraft worked completely although yeah. i was beginning to right and there are certainly some really cool things on the first record that i i thought ooh, i'm breaking through i'm understanding yeah um i used to spend a lot it's the first time i would spend time like i'd go get like a cheap bottle of whiskey and like a couple of beers go back to my like one room you know like place like right you know like on the main dragon volley and listen to records and go wow what happens in this bridge like here's this bridge like um and and i would sort of just smoke cigarettes and think about how it all like how all how songs worked yeah so it was just a that's how that that stuff happened but knowing how to play live and being comfortable and playing gigs like i mean some of those shows were the worst things that could have ever been (laughs) but they weren't glamorously bad they were like look over and like caitlin (laughs) in my band is crying and i'm because i'm unaware totally (laughs) fucked up i am and maybe someone else in the band is and i'm like wow like did we just play that song in like 30 seconds and i'll go like maybe we just ended that song after a verse i thought it was over and like and like after a couple of times of that you just see someone crying you're like wow this is terrible someone on stage like the music is making them cry and they're not moved (laughs) like stuff like that i mean I, I, i mean i was very young I mean, it's the same age that anybody would be when they're staying up all night right. in college and right. partying. And right. So, so once yeah. that fizzles out and you start to work solo, what changed? You know, it's a very interesting thing. Um, Whiskey Town was still together when I moved to New York City the yeah. first time. And I only left for a, for a minute, just long enough to get stuff together and to go back. But I lived in New York City, and I, I lived with my girlfriend, and um, we had a couple of black cats, and like um, things were great. And she worked in the music industry, and um, I was sort of waiting to see what would happen with my band because um, we had done the Strangers Almanac tour stuff, and I was still kind of waiting, like, 
okay, like when is this next record that I had done in Woodstock with Ethan going to come out and are we going to tour? That and was it, the odd record with just you and Caitlin mostly? Yeah, the, it was a record called Pneumonia. Pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah, which is a <laughs> not great al- mm-hmm. album title. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't know. Um, so, and uh, I remember she came home one day and she said, this thing is happening with the music industry and it's really bad. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, this company is going to buy a lot of the other companies and I think everybody's going to be affected and maybe even my job. She's like, you should find out about what's happening with yours. I'm like, no, it'll never happen. I'm fine. Sure enough, it basically put my album and Outpost Records, it put it into a freeze where I couldn't leave, but I couldn't release that record and I didn't know what to do. Pneumonia. Yeah. And so... um, you know, what really sucks is living in New York City and being younger and the pressure of, like, how do we pay the rent and, um, like, how do we get to the next step and, like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, it really – it was really hardcore. It, it was a, the first time I ever felt that pressure as an adult to go, like, oh, my God, like, my job is to play music and now I'm actually going to – I have to figure out a way to provide. Yeah. So – For yourself. Yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't, there wasn't, I mean, no matter what, my friend Jesse Mallon at the time was like, come down to Niagara and you could just DJ for a couple hours, they'll give you some money. And But I realized at some point they were just being nice. They knew it was falling apart for me. Yeah. Um, were you using drugs? No, not, I mean, occasionally, yeah. but, but I wasn't, a, um, at that point, like I would do some if they were around, but I right. wasn't, um, I wasn't holding. Yeah. Um, we would drink a lot, but usually for free. We knew somebody that was a bartender, right? Sure. Some bar, you yeah. Know, you know how it is, yeah. And it, so somebody's got a little bit of blow or something. You do sure. a little bit, but it, it was I wasn't like rolling, you know. Yeah. Uh. So, but I think what led to Heartbreaker was the very humbling thing was um, Amy and I uh, are very much connected. Well, we always will be, and to this day we still are. Um, but we just had a we had a kinship and a vibe and a mutual sort of dream and the financial aspect of like what happened with that I guess it was Seagram's bought Geffen or whatever they did or however whatever that thing that changed yeah. around uh, the late 90s happened that really it broke it broke my heart it broke her heart it broke us a little bit she was she's from Jersey so she was going to move back for a minute um to figure her stuff out and i didn't have anywhere to go so i had to call someone that i knew in raleigh north carolina and of course my next step was to call alan and say like man like the it's falling apart up here i'm coming back yeah and most people are like he'll never move back to jacksonville and fuck if i didn't i like a friend picked me up and I remember the last day in the apartment and I left the stuff that I couldn't take with me and I took some stuff with me and um, we got in the van and we headed south and I remember the scene in the city got smaller and smaller out the back window. Yeah. And man, that was, I I can think of that moment right now. It was so brutal. It was like- Like a failure moment? Oh man, for me, it was like, that's it. That there went- that was my time. That was my time as a musician. Right. I I was like I'm I'm gonna probably go back into the construction business because I was a great plumber. Like yeah. Built building new plumbing was I'm very I'm very good at it. And roofing I was always good good at roofing. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be good now. 
um, I would get dizzy and kill myself <laughs> on accident. Or, um, but you know, when I was younger, I, I was always fine to be out in the cold, and cold doesn't. Were you working me. for your dad? No, but my dad taught me the trades. Yeah, a little bit when he could, so that I could go get a job for, for anybody, and he would always know a contact or something that I could go get on some crew. And yeah, yeah, it, it would always be pretty hardcore. I mean, it wouldn't be like me and some other punks. It was yeah. like me and some like grizzled dudes that like <laughs> crawled out <laughs> of like some I don't know where. Yeah, like, but you know, it was a living. It was fine, and uh, so, so you, I, I thought I was done. Yeah, I got back to. North Carolina and um, you know it was pretty kind of it was a really long sad weird time like I just I was sleeping on couches um, for a minute partying because I was back in town people were happy to see me yeah. but inside me I was like mm. I failed like, yeah. I failed I'm not in, in a band anymore yeah. I'm nobody and then so I couldn't deal with that feeling so I left from there and went back further um further east to jacksonville and moved back in with my friend alan like which was pretty amazing the drummer yeah to who's i now lived in the house that that's backyard fence linked up to my grandmother's backyard fence i was on the other side of the fence now but your grandparents were still there my grandmother was still yeah. alive but my grandfather died yeah he, he died and i left home right it's like i I was there till he passed. Right. And when he passed, he passed about the same time that my cat bully was poisoned, I'm relatively sure. And I remember thinking, like, I'm out. Yeah. So this was kind of a return. In fact, I didn't tell anyone that I had, I had gotten back. Yeah. I didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. And that's where I wrote Heartbreaker in his living room. Yeah. <laughs> I um, went to Nashville. It was very weird. It was just me and Ethan and an engineer in the studio. And that was how Heartbreaker started. Yeah. And Gillian and Dave would come around. Gillian Welch? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dave Rollins. They they came around, I think, like two different nights um, to sort of see what we were up with. Right. Like what was going on. And Emmy came down. And I had been around her before. And Emmy Lou Harris? Where had you been around her? Um, I first met her at this th- this show that's no longer on the air that's called Sessions at West 54. Yeah. And they did a special about the music of Graham Parsons. Right. And they had different people playing with the house band. And she and I had met at that. I think we actually maybe met before that at like a at Black Mountain Bluegrass Festival or something. Yeah. And then so I saw her there. When you were with Whiskey Town? Yes, but I, I used to do a more broken down version of it. Right. And you were a Graham Parsons fan? Yes. I was obsessed with... Like when I first heard Graham Parsons... I did. I. Uh, it took me a long time to process that he existed. Was it after the Cowboy Junkies? Yes. Yeah. It, um, one of the first things that Skillet did was, you know, he like gave me a beer and we talked, and he put on, the, um, Grant Parsons. He put on GP. Yeah. And I, I was like, I was like, what the fuck is this? He's like, wait, you don't know what this is? <laughs> I was like, no. What What is this? And he showed me the CD cover. Yeah, yeah. And I was like who is who is this person yeah he's like oh man he's like we have a lot to talk about he's like do you know the flying burrito brothers and i'm like you're making that that name up for sure (laughs) and he's like man he's like you got to come by the house and we should just listen to records and so he kind of showed me like look people have gone here before but they didn't even know what they were doing right and he he was putting it to me in the way that he and i used to talk he'd be like man like these were like hippies 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are they doing making country music? What happened? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, we'd be all wasted. He's like, I don't know. He's like, maybe they were confused about what it was. <laughs> so you got to get you got to get hip to the birds, to the Flying Burrito Brothers, to the band. Sweethearts the Rodeo yeah. happened. I remember like, what? Yeah. And the band at first I didn't like. Yeah. Which is interesting because I didn't like Big Star at first either. But then... It's that thing that like, oh, I hope it still happens with people now, but it's when you're washing dishes at a restaurant, because that's your job, yeah. and different people get a chance to put in what cassette they want yeah. and make a mixtape, right. a song might come on, and you might not like it at first, or you might not know the band, but it's a particular song, yeah. and it's like, For You by Big Star. Yeah. I remember washing dishes and stopping cold, and I'm like, whoa, what is this? And I was like, this is exactly how I feel and I ran in and the like Brian Walsby was the second cook in Raleigh and, and I was like what what is this song he's like man we're slammed what are you doing he's like they need dishes and I'm like what is this song and he's like it's Big Star he's like you hate him I'm like no I don't hate him anymore and he stops for a second and he goes really and I'm like aren't you slammed he's like we'll talk about it later and I'm like so the whole rest of the night I'm like play the cassette again like that whole kind of thing happened yeah well so later on that happened with me with the band like the um the brown album was yeah. the record where I was the like, second oh. record with the, them on cover yeah yeah um I was like wow like that record still to this day I'm like what is going on like there definitely was something to my discovery of that stuff because being from eastern North Carolina you're subjected to uh, country music and even at that time um i don't remember george Strait at all but i definitely heard johnny cash yeah. i knew hank williams my grandfather loved all that and yeah. my grandmother you know if there was like the mandrills like like a tv sure. special on sure. we watched it he haul yeah loretta lynn big deal yeah. in my house yeah so but to get hip to Graham was different i think that changed the game dramatically for me um and in, fa- in fact that had to have been the first time i went like like where I saw someone writing a song and I went, this is a mystical thing. This right. isn't, it's very different than my punk rock and post-punk records. This is a, they're, uh, I knew they were referencing, it's like I used to say like, they're like messing with like real music. Right. <laughs> I was like, they're doing something with real music, but it's like just on the line. Yeah. <laughs> it was my only way of describing it. Yeah. But you saw that Graham showed you that songwriting could be something transcendent in and of itself yeah i mean i don't think i'd ever really uh, i mean it's interesting to say that when i first started listening to that and i was in whiskey town it didn't affect me and reach me although it was kind of doing it the way that it it was like sort of like a seed yeah and and what's interesting is is you have to fast forward to when i that band breaks up but it breaks up weirdly when i'm in new york yeah and i have to leave to go back and then i get back to jacksonville where i just basically wrote songs and didn't know what was going to happen to my life and i just went you know what this would be cool i make little records yeah and um you know i'll make records and do some up do some club dates once in a while and i'll have a regular job that's what i thought was going to happen but like i like to, I could listen to those records by that time finally, and do that thing where you make a couple of neat glasses of whiskey and have a beer and yeah. smoke cigarettes, and like y- you cry like 
as a man, like as a young man, but still like because of your life, like a, this, you let the song hit you. It's just you in the record. Yeah. You're by yourself in the house and like your liberal tears go down your face and you're yeah. like, wow, like this song, this song is like, the song is killing me and like raising me up from the dead at the same time. That fucking feeling that yeah. you get. You know, uh, for most people, I think that probably hasn't happened until they listen to, to like Bonnie Raitt, like, I can't make you love me if you won't, like, like that vibe. You know what I mean? Like, some sure. songs are going to do it to you whether you like it or not. Yeah. Like, they really hit you. But for me, I processed that information in an unusual way that I think kind of mixed it with how much I loved Dylan and how much I loved, um, you know, I just loved early Bob Dylan so much. Like yeah. I just loved that sound and the connection there. And and then, so you go back and you end up in Nashville playing with these amazing musicians Yeah, and you make your first solo record. Yeah. And I was just there to make the record. I didn't really think I would stay, but I got there and my manager was smart enough to be like, well, listen, I basically rented you a house. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, cause I think you should stay here. And I was like, Oh really? Well, he believed in you. Yeah, I think he wanted to get me out of like, I think he knew that I could, I was on that line of going like, I'm done, like I'm just going to go move back home. And, right. Uh, which would have been really interesting if I had done that. So after Heartbreaker, you you must have built some confidence. I mean, more than I had yeah. before. And when you made Gold, what what was the plan? What was your manager telling you to do? What were you doing? Well, so that's, so I did the Heartbreaker tour by myself. Yeah. And just you and a guitar? Yeah, and then and a tour manager, my friend Van. Yeah. And who wasn't really a tour manager, he just figured it out to do it. Yeah. And um that was the first time I really went to England. It was the first time I really toured other countries where I really played um solo by myself and really kind of played some regal places. Yeah. I didn't even know it was in magazines. Someone had to tell me. Yeah. They're like, you're in this magazine called Mojo. I'm oh like, yeah, I remember Mojo. And I'm like, what is that? And so I did all that and I came back and um my manager set up a deal for me to move from Bloodshot to um an like a, a label called Lost Highway, but it was yeah. essentially Mercury Records, which right. uh, I was afraid to be on anyway. And um, but I did it because he was like, "Look, it's going to be great." Um, they tell they told me all the stuff that they tell anyone. Like, we'll let you do whatever you want. Yeah. So I did that, and then I went to record the follow up, which was actually a double album, but uh, of it was that many songs, but it was just me and a guitar yeah. and Bob Dylan's slide guitar player. Yeah. And sometimes a stand up bass player. Yeah. And I wanted it that stripped back because right. that's what I'd learned on the road. I was like, wow, that the root of the song is great. The song's great. Right. So I did all these recordings and they didn't, they liked some of them. They didn't love them. And that later on got in the early days of CDs and then laptops happened. That eventually got bootlegged and to become this thing called, people call it the suicide handbook. That's what they call this bootleg. Yeah. But because, but they, but the original thing I wrote on the disc that they must all be from yeah. was the career suicide handbook. Oh, okay. Because someone told me when I played it for them, if that was my record, they're like, well, this is just career suicide. And I was like, that's a great name yeah. for the record. And right. they're like, you can't call it that. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, so basically everything you said is n like not true. Yeah. It's like, you're like, you could do whatever you want. Like, right. you just want to support the artist, 
but no, you can't call your record that, and it's not this record. Right. <laughs> so, so I was like, well, cool. I'll, I talked to Ethan. He goes, come out to L.A. and let's just let's just make stuff. There's some. Cool, he's like, you got some cool songs left over from Heartbreaker. You have some of these new ones. Let's just like call in some people like we did last time and see what happens. And I kind of was like blown away by the sunshine and blown away by meeting people yeah. and. I didn't know Heartbreaker had reached people that at the time I never would have met, I never would have met. Right. So I was around for the first time people that I was akin to, but they were people that live here, and it's hard if you don't live in Hollywood to realize like you can literally be at a diner somewhere, and you're a spastic arty person, and you could be from Arkansas, yeah, and like maybe you didn't think anyone was like you, but a couple of your freaky friends yeah and you have all these touchstones in pop culture but like you could be at just a deli or something yeah. and like you could meet like you know ali sheedy yeah. like or something like right uh, like and like you could have like this wicked conversation because it's because you both love the band x it just happens and then you could say okay later like that's just how it is yeah and or you could run into like ray manzarek like right well when, when he was alive <laughs> i did that several times and i was like I I was like, wow, there's Raymond Zarek. <laughs> yeah, I and he's still like, get that. Yeah, he was totally cool, and yeah. like, um, I I think, uh, and I so I think for that influenced the record, and I felt optimistic, and I was on the other side of a pretty deep wound. My career wasn't gone. I was making an album. Um, a so lot I, of people were on that album on Gold. Yeah, Ethan. Um, lived here at the time, so he knew a lot of musicians who were great. Ben Mont, who later was someone that I played with on my last couple of records, and he's great. I've talked to him, Ben Montench. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing and amazing friend. But he played on that record, and I never even met him then. <laughs> he yeah, did Kamasi it. Washington too. It says. Yeah, I, I was there for for that session, but I Ben Mont came in and played and was gone before I got there. And Chris Stills is a friend of yours. Yes. Yeah. And, and he... Um, th His dad is Stephen Stills. Yeah. And then strangely, again, what's interesting is yeah. Ethan and Chris were down the hall making right. their record with the Stones were across the hall. And I was just in that side room yeah. at... Um, it, uh, it's called... I, I think it's called Cello now, or maybe they change it back to East West or whatever the studio's name yeah. at the time was. But so that's the same place where Liz Fair, Whiskey Town, yeah. Rolling Stones, and Chris Stills all in the same building. It goes back to like there's that first connection happening again, and then with the second person. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. So gold does well for you. That's a, a, a did you have did you chart? I don't think I did. I don't remember if it did. I think that. I think they spent a lot of money and a lot of t time yeah. um, on promo for that record. Yeah. And I remember I never stopped doing promo. <laughs> and like, like it was sort of a like any person that would be up for it, I talked to them. It was that sort of time in my career. Yeah. So I feel like what people felt that record was versus what it did were different. Also, that was a different time. That was the, the, some of the earliest days when you could um, you could start uh, bootlegging records, right? Which I didn't know about. Yeah, which is fine. Also, this other thing happened. Nine Eleven happened, and, yeah. Uh, and that and th that actually happened the day my record came out, which is pretty wild. Hmm. I think that was the day that the Strokes' um, uh, "Is This It" came out on that day. I remember it like this. Yeah. I still was playing shows and I still was in my zone. 
like I played a show only a couple months later and like Elton came out and played on stage with me at like Irving Plaza, which was so cool of him. And it was super amazing. To Elton. John, Elton John came out and play and like things like that would happen all the time. But, you know, mostly uh, as I remember it, um, even though these cool things could be happening, my focus and no one else's focus, especially living in New York, um, was really ever far away from the shock of that. Like it, it really resonated, and 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 I don't remember. Uh, I wasn't taking a lot of drugs or doing anything too crazy. I just that time I think was mostly like you just wake up and go like I got to get through today, like you yeah. know. And I, I I'm not going to look at the television, and then you do, and then like you're mortified again, and people were scared. Yeah, I was, was there. It was it was horrible, really horrible, and. So people go like, so yeah, like after 9-11, like your song became like an anthem of sorts. And like, no, man, like it didn't. Which one? New York, New York? Yeah, but people say that, but I go like, that's not true. Like I remember the radio at that time, like they played like John Lennon. They played Neil Young. Like radio changed that for a while. Yeah. It took a minute for anybody. It was kind of bizarre that like, it's like all of a sudden people went towards the most meaning possible and the things that they cherished. And it was like every, I mean, it's a very sobering thing, but radio changed, TV changed, you know? Yeah. It's hard to watch David Letterman and Conan O'Brien at that time, like crying on TV and like really breaking down. I mean, but that's how everybody felt. It's horrible. Months later, you're walking around and you could still like- Smell it. Smell that soot in the air. That that metal- that melting metal smell you could taste it i remember i was like it was a pretty bizarre so yeah i didn't yeah i didn't have that experience of going of of being able to feel that record so you got through that well what what caused you to get like you say you get you still get high what caused you to get you know sober off what are you off of booze yeah i don't well i mean some people would say like pot is a drug but and i get it but uh it's you know i did a it's my, not coke. It's not dope. It's not booze. And I did a and I did a very very long time where I was just totally straight. Yeah. But um, I could not find any way without. Um, I couldn't find a way to deal with Meniere's disease um, without the suggestion that I should take um, stuff for the pain. Uh, and what is the symptoms of that exactly? It's very hard to describe. Uh, but I'll sort of put it this way like um like if you're sitting in a chair and it's yeah. normal and you're talking to someone and then you and i have what i f- feel like as an episode yeah and i get up um especially if i have been stressed or um sometimes it's triggered it could be i've been haven't been sleeping well and i get like a bulb flashes yeah. or something flashes really quickly yeah. um then it's like the distance from where my feet are to the ground I don't know how far it is to the ground. What? It's That's like crazy. It's like um yeah, it feels like you're on the edge of a building, but then also like so your stomach drops and you uh, it feels like you're sick. Yeah. And then I and you can't really eat. Um you can, but you just, you just get really sick and my jaw goes numb and then my hands go numb. It's and then I and I used to be it used to be much worse. And I just would be in bed because I just couldn't. Yeah, I I couldn't be. I but couldn't, weed helps. It's really funny. Like I was, so I was just dealing with it, and I was just shipwrecked for years. And I quit playing music. I quit playing live because I couldn't handle it. Like yeah. nothing worked. 
and um, one day um, my uh, brother-in-law was like he was like uh, he's like a f- funny and cool dude but he was yeah. like he was like hey man I, I I hate to know that you're sick but I like so I made these cookies like I know you don't really you know do anything but yeah. I saw these cookies and make you feel better they're really mellow <laughs> And I was like, what is he talking about? And I didn't really think about it. I just went, ooh, cookie. Yeah. So I ate like half a cookie. Yeah. And instantly um, in the middle of this drawn out, really horrible time, not feeling good, um, I felt better. Like in a couple of hours, I I don't know, I, I felt, I just felt better. Yeah. And th- by that night, I went for a, a walk and like I've, I, I had like a little bit more of an appetite and I just was like, this is working. I, I was like, I'm not like, Ooh, let me see how, how many cookies I can eat. Like I didn't go right into some kind of place, but when I was diagnosed, they were like, you need to stop smoking. Yeah. You cannot drink. Yeah. They're like, you cannot drink coffee. You cannot have sodium. Like the, the guy basically explain it to me he was like you're gonna have to eventually find a way to get exercise when you can and change all this stuff in your life or or it'll exacerbate it because yeah. he was like it's a degenerative disease and the longer you have it the worse that you will get and, yeah and he's like the usual finality of what happens is you go deaf i was like wow this is a game changer yeah so um i just live with that for that's kind of why i was like i gotta stop touring with the cardinals we were so loud yeah um and i didn't it wasn't like it was when it started and so i went off the road and i just because i lived here for a while i went to like see an acupuncturist i'd never done that it helped i went to see a hypnotherapist to deal with attacks like what do i do when i have an attack if i'm like on stage or like what would be the theoretical thing yeah and to quit smoking yeah that that worked and um little by little i started to get better it was like a it's like a pathetic version of rocky it's just like a dude <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out how to get back to guitar yeah well i'm glad you're better why why did you do a whole the why did you cover taylor swift's record <laughs> <laughs> why yeah um what compelled you I don't know. I, I I guess it's one of those things. Like, have you ever done? Have you ever have you ever done something creative, and you, and you just and you finish it because you started it. Yeah. Because it it's like a it'll be hard, <laughs> but it's like that would be really hard. I should try that. <laughs> and like, and then you get halfway or whatever, and you're like, What am I doing? You, or maybe you ask yourself that, but you go like, I, I'm like, I gotta finish it. I started it now. Yeah. And then you finish it, and you're stoked that you did. You went, I, That's so cool. I did it. My version of 1989. Yeah, man. I want to hear your version <laughs> of it. Here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, I learned a ton from doing that. Yeah. And I needed to be playing and I wasn't on tour. Yeah. And I would have gone crazy had I not been. Yeah. And I just like, but I also was like, I didn't want to write more songs. Right. And you liked your songs? Yes. I I, I think that there are, I mean, there are some of her songs that, that it's just crystalline. So what'd you learn? Well, because that record was different and it wasn't like her on a guitar. Yeah. That's the other weird thing is it was like, wow, like how do I process this record? Yeah. Um, you know, she's my friend. Like, 
like we don't like go to football games and chill together right. or, or anything but like you know we check in and um and uh, like talk about m- music once in a while and she's always been supports my yeah. vibe and, and and vice versa but I, I knew that um i was like it, it was even if i hadn't known or i wanted to do it because i was like well i'm not gonna do like i don't want to cover like like dark side of the moon or right, something. right right i i wanted to know what that record was yeah and uh when i was on tour i would listen to it and go like I'm like, wow, this is really beat oriented. But so where I can hear the bass line and it's cool because you're using a sub bass and then there's this top line. I'm like, so where is it on the guitar? Yeah. In my mind, I was imagining the capo positions. Right. So by the time I just sat down with me and my buddy Todd that we would we'd go on the quest to make anything sound like the Smiths. Like, <laughs> like our thing was, what if we try to make that record feel like the Smiths or something? Yeah. And I was like, it should be like that. But if we can't make it like that, then we just try to make it sound like Darkness in the Edge of Town. He was like, we're in. Let's do this. And we got a couple in and we're like, it really works. Yeah. And But then came the thing where you go, oh, wow. So, okay, she has all this full range as a vocalist, but I don't. So if I want to play the same chords but make the song work, the only way is capo fourth fret. And I'm going to have to when I hit this place, like shift. So it was so cool. Cause I'm like, this is way out of my comfort zone. I'm so down for that. Oh, good. So by the time I figured it all out and could get my way in, I not only had spent this great time being a musician and just like translating stuff, but yeah. I got to think about these tunes in a different way. It felt good. It felt like- Sure, you got some new muscles. I never really have i've never covered a whole record and the covers that i have done have usually been pretty easier they've been to do them yeah but it led me to also know that since i didn't start playing guitar doing covers yeah i made up for it by later covering like at the time like the most successful record yeah because that's the, sort of like you know most people learn stairway to heaven first yeah. but for me i, I I waited until I was like 41 <laughs> or something and I covered in 1989. <laughs> Love it. One of the reasons I, I knew I had to talk to you, because you know, we've, I, we've sort of circled around this for a long time. Mm. But I don't know, someone sent me this link of you, not even in a real performance situation, just doing um, Warfrat, the Grateful Dead's Warfrat on an acoustic guitar. Somewhere, it looked like a, at a tech show or something. And, you know, like, that is one of my, my favorite songs of all time. Me too. And That's it just so hits me so fucking deeply. And it always has. And I can't even remember the first time I heard it. What is it? Because you developed a relationship with Phil after Jerry died, right? And it was around that song, right? Yeah. They, um, I, I don't know how that happened. I mean, I think it was from, uh, Phil had heard the record I made called Cold Roses. Yeah. Um, I think his wife got on that record. Yeah. And he, it really resonated with him. Uh-huh. And so he started coming to see shows. That song for me, also strangely that you're telling me this, because that song for me was my portal in to the Grateful Dead. And, and I feel like the Grateful Dead is like a geography. It's like a, if there were a map for it, everybody has a different version of yeah. what it is. Yeah. But in my mind, like there are certain places I don't go to. Yeah. But I know the neighborhood path to stick to so that I find my way through their catalog right. and their live stuff. And, and and more and more as I travel it, those places I didn't love before, like they're actually becoming more familiar and I'm cool with them. But Warfrat is on 
the Skull and Roses, aka Skullfuck record, that record, that song in particular, I don't know what kind of music that is. I don't know what happens, but from the very beginning with this, the toms that are rolling so freely, it's like the African rhythm that just sort of then coalesces into boom, boom, boom. It's like breathing. Yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> yoga. It's like <laughs> yeah. meditation. Right. Mysticism. Yeah. Um, they are so, they are so, n- I feel like when I listen to that song and I listen to the dead, I feel like I can close my eyes and I could feel like the presence of na- like nature, like the yeah. actual reality of, of earth and yeah. like what it sounds like. And, all the stuff, the yeah. noise that we make, it disappears, and I'm like, oh, this, this is reality. Yeah, it's so much more transcendental than you know. Like, it, there's so many more stories, and they re- they reek of empathy, they reek of compassion. They and it, they're not, and it's not, they're not self-victimized, and they're not bleeding. Like they are, it's like a, they're just a. F- fucking huge marshmallow love machine like a tank made out of marshmallows just like rolling down a hill of like blueberries and like you're just at the bottom and you're like come on just hit me and it just rolls over you and you're like i'm in yeah, and it yeah. that's to me like, and then you're like i'll get up and fly away <laughs> totally i mean yeah i mean it's it's I mean it's an unbelievable thing to say, but the very first time I ever heard that was in North Carolina, and it was early on. It was when I had first moved um, in uh, to the band room yeah. uh, with Jerry and Alan, the first guys I played with. And I used to go to Rocky Mountain all the time because we had friends there that played yeah. guitar. And um, there was this guy named Dean that was a huge deadhead, and I, yeah. I was like, I just don't understand. I'm like, can we? He was like, well, so we'd listen to the doors. That's how we would, right. that's how we'd figure it out. One night he's like, I just want to, I want you to see something. Yeah. And he was like, okay. And it was, um, it was Felicia, him, and me. And we drove out into this place that near his dad's farm where there wasn't anything. And you could see all the stars yeah. and just this really big, long stretch of trees. And he's like, I just want you to listen to this. And we were on a little bit of acid. Yeah. And he turned up his car stereo and he played that song. And I was like lying down on my back on the hood of the car. Yeah. Felicia's lying down the same way. Dean turned it up as loud as it would go. And yeah. He had like a Mazda 280Z or something that yeah. had like the top came off so right. you could really hear. And that song came on. And I just remember going like, what <laughs> and I'm like looking up you could see like the Orion constellation I'm like what the fuck and I and he and by the time it got to the end like I don't think I said anything for hours like I was just like oh my god and like luckily it didn't go into like you know it didn't go into like some of the there's definitely some speed oriented like covers on yeah, that record right 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 like Johnny be good yeah, yeah which are great but yeah. I, I just kept that and i was like he knew he knew how to get me he was like he loves la woman like and we listen to early stones this is how i'm going to get him in yeah. 
And as soon as he did that, like, what do they say? Like, you're on the bus. <laughs> the but, portal was opened. Yeah, yeah, and I never got to see the dead. But weirdly, the next time I really ever, I mean, I learned that song, but the flash, flash forward to this moment, another one of those moments, like Keith passing me the joint, and it's yeah. like the two fingers, like, and, um, and it was uh, looking up at Red Rocks and going into the beginning of that song, deciding when it would happen. Yeah. And then hearing those bass notes and looking over to my left and even though I know him and he's my friend, yeah. like it's night, there's all these stars and I'm like, boom, 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 and I hear, doo, 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 boom, boom. <laughs> and I just, I, and I, I kept playing, but I just looked to my left and his fucking, f- there's Phil. <laughs> He's and he just looks at me and he's smiling. It's like he knows, yeah. and I'm just like I, I don't know. What, and I just was like, just get in the song, get in the song, and so all these people, as far as you could see, and I just remember going like, I, I I remember going like, there's there's no way I'll ever be able to describe what's happening in this moment, but fuck yeah, man, it just came through you. You decided to go into Warfrat and you were playing with Phil and friends, right? Yeah. And Phil, as you you look over and he's like, yeah. Totally, man. <laughs> totally. Great talking to you, man. Nice talking to you. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Covered a lot of ground. Interesting dude. Poetic. Interesting mind. And loves the song Warfrat. That, you know, no matter what that guy does, I, I, I'm, I love him for that. Is that all right? Hope you enjoyed that. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour to see where I'm going to be playing in the next few months. Maybe I'll be by you. And uh, maybe should I? I'll play a little guitar. Okay. Yeah. You talk me into it.